Good morning. I'm Kathy H., a compulsive eater and bulimic. I've had the privilege of being one of the program chairs for the convention. There were two other people instrumental in making our program happen, Jerry A. and Barbara R. In fact, we were called the Three Musketeers. I really want to give them a warm and loving shout out. Mwah. So hasn't this weekend been amazing? It's hard to believe we're in our last hours of the convention. Before we close, we have an important piece of business to address. Over the past year, our fellowship participated in a diversity survey to make sure everyone feels welcome at our OA meetings. To speak about that, I'd like to introduce Ken Flaviano N from Union City, California. Ken Flaviano, Flaviano N served on our Region 2 Diversity Committee. Today, he's here to, uh, to share the survey results. Please welcome him. All right. Hey, everyone. Uh, my name is uh, Ken Flaviano Naranja III, and I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm Filipino, and I'm also the son of immigrants. I'm a representative of the OA Diversity Community of Region 2. We are a team, and there have been quite a few of us here. If you're part of the diversity community, please free to wave your hand uh, as everybody's out there. And you'll notice that we're all, uh, all around. So it's a deep heartfelt honor to represent my fellow OA diversity community of Region 2. So the OA diversity community was known as the Diversity Committee. We changed the name to the OA diversity community to more accurately reflect what we have become, a community. We are an OA community focused on diversity whose primary purpose, which was given by Region 2, is to do service for the Region 2 around diversity. So with this presentation, you don't have to remember everything. We will be sharing a PowerPoint slides with all of you at the end. So don't worry if you miss something. So if I could have uh, Ellen, please go ahead, uh, uh, pull up the, uh, uh, there we go. Thank you very much. So I'll open up with our sacred traditions. Tradition, uh, this is an overview of results of the ongoing OAR2 Diversity Community Awareness Survey. Please go ahead and go to the next slide. Thank you. So we'll start with the tradition five. Each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. So we ask this question, how welcoming and inclusive are we as OA to the people who are currently in the rooms and those who are new to the rooms. So to find out these answers, we need to hear from our fellow OA members in a way that is authentic, anonymous, and directly from them. We created this survey to help answer this question. So as a team, this is the first time any of us have created the survey. We are not perfect, we are human, we don't know everything about diversity, but this survey was created from a place of service and we would like to share some of, the of our learnings with all of you. So this is what we came up with. Go ahead, next slide, please. Thank you. So this survey was created in both English and Spanish, plus um, just one, uh, uh, one uh, uh, there's a total of 23 questions for the survey. As of July 5th, the survey had 688 responses. 50 of those were total were in Spanish. And we broke down the survey to make up, to see who makes up OA and how welcome included does each group feel. 
So of the 688 respondents, 7.9% uh, of the respondents were transgender, two-spirited, non-binary, intersex, and responses of 50. We had 10.5% of responses were male, which is 66, and 81.6% were female, 515. Next, uh, press again, thank you. And by race, 20.3 were BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, People of Color, 126. 79.7 of the responses were white, 495. 26, uh, next slide, next part. All right, 26.2 of the responses were LGBTQ+, or 158. 73.8 of the responses were heterosexual, 446. Next, thank you. Spanish responses, 7.3% or 50, and English was 638 responses, 92.7. So overall, we took data on different types of, whoop, hold on a second. Uh, uh, we took data on different types of compulsive eating, faith, spirituality, ethnic background, ability status, but we have not compiled all the data yet. So this is where we got, it gets interesting. And let's go into the next slide, please. Thank you. Tradition five, each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. And we, got, we were able to find some answers to how welcoming and inclusive are we as OA to the people who are currently in the rooms and those who are new to the rooms. Once we, from there, once we got the information, we took a look at the responses to the questions and saw how each group responded and what their comments were. So for example, next slide, please. Uh, thank you. So the question at the top, I feel comfortable talking about my background, identity, and cultural experiences with my fellow OA members and fellow OA, OA fellows and OA meeting in an OA meeting and events. So why is this question important? How can we carry the message to our fellow OA members if we are not willing to hear, know, and acknowledge their background, their identity, and their cultural experience? How welcoming and inclusive can we be if we don't let our fellow OA members share who they are with their background, identity, and cultural experience? So this is what we found. As you look right over here, we found that for the BIPOC group responses, the number said that said yes, uh, they did feel comfortable talking about their background identity was uh, 56 people or 44.8% of the BIPOC responses. White, 329 uh, people said yes, or 67% said yes to this question. And these are some of the comments uh, that was uh, recorded with this question. Next slide, please. So for example, one BIPOC response, mm -hmm. I don't think anyone will get me. I remember when Charlottesville happened, pro-white rally, rally where one person died happened. I was so scared to share about it during the meeting and I couldn't even mention it by name. I remember it was really quiet in the room and I was nervous when I mentioned going, uh, I mentioned something going on, but I didn't say Charlottesville. Why do I have to beat around the bush with something that is affecting my recovery? And someone, um, and that same question from a white person, I feel that this is an outside issue at meetings. 
Another response was, I don't think race and racism is an outside issue. And in, in AA, the old timers say it is. As a person's color can't be taken off. There are times when race issues affect our recovery and we should feel free to identify these moments for our fellows and for our recovery. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide, please. So this is the same question, uh, but the response is from the LGBTQ and also heterosexual. So the LGBTQ <coughs> responded 54.8% um, or 86 people said yes. They feel comfortable talking about their background, identity, cultural experiences. And then heterosexuals, uh, 296 responded and 67.1% said, yes, I feel comfortable. So now notice right here, the 12.3% difference where a little over the half of the LGBTQ respondents answered yes, while two thirds of the heterosexual respondents said yes. So just noticing these uh, different differences. We won't be reading this, uh, the comments out loud because we're short on time, uh, but this presentation will be emailed to all of you afterwards. So please go ahead and go to the next slide. And then, so that is a, that will be emailed to you. Go ahead and go to the next slide, please. So uh, the same question of, I feel comfortable talking about my background, identity, cultural experiences with OA fellows and OA meetings and events. So now notice um, right over here for transgender, two-spirited, non-binary, intersex, the number of respondents is 15 or 30.6 said yes, they feel comfortable. Males, 37 respondents, 56 said they were comfortable. Uh, for, females, 342 or 67% said that they're uh, comfortable. So um, this is the 30, so now notice right here, there's a 37% difference between the transgender, two-spirited, non-binary, intersex, and female group. And there's also 11% difference between the male group and the female group. So let's go ahead and go to the next one. We won't be able to read this because we're short on time. Next slide, please. All right, so, so we did this process for each and every question. Uh, we are currently finishing up and starting to do the same with the Spanish responses to the survey. It's quite a process, but it's worth it because each and every sur survey is an OA fellow's voice that deserves to be heard in an authentic, honest, and anonymous way. So diversity is about being welcoming and being inclusive. It's an ongoing process. We can acknowledge where we are at and where we need to improve on becoming more welcoming and inclusive to our fellow OA members. When we are able to, to do this, we are better able to fulfill the tradition of each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. We appreciate the convention committee for our 10 minutes. Thank you. Unfortunately, it's not enough time to do justice to share the work with the survey that the OA diversity community has been doing over the past year. So this is what we have come up with. Uh, could you go ahead and, um, uh, and then also in the chat box, if you're interested in joining the workshop, being able to go ahead and hear more, please go ahead um, and email this, the diversity-chair at oar2.org uh, if you'd like to hear more. And also like to make an announcement last, 
yesterday the diversity panel we didn't have a chance to go ahead and do a question and reminder on yeah so uh at 12 30 12 50 it's in your emails to go ahead and if you would like to join us for the panel uh to build ask those questions thank you very much Thank you so much, Ken Flaviano. And now I'd like to introduce our closing speaker, Ellen G from New York City. I had the pleasure of hearing Ellen G share her deeply moving story a few years ago. She's truly an example of someone free of the disease one day at a time. I'm so pleased she's here to share her experience, strength and hope with all of us. Here's Ellen G. Doesn't look like she's here. LNG's not here. Hmm. Well, she says she's here. Uh, in a in a chat, she says she's in the in the chat. She says she's here. Is she an attendee? Is she in as an attendee? It says, Ellen, to all panelists, I'm here. <laughs> Ellen, raise your hand. Now it looks like I'm here, here. <laughs> awesome. All I had to do was raise my hand. <laughs> I knew we'd find you. Okay. Oh, terrific. Oh my goodness. Technology. Um, let me just get this uh, transcript thing, subtitles off so they don't drive me nuts. I wanna, first of all, hey everybody, I'm Ellen. I'm recovering from anorexia, bulimia, exercise bulimia. And I wanna first thank Kathy so much for offering me this opportunity to share my experience, strength, and hope with you all here today. What a gift and a joy to be here. <sighs> um, so I am going to share my experience, strength, and hope. That, that is what, you know, we often hear in qualifications that the, the, what we do is we say what it was like, what happened, what I'm like now. <clears throat> but I wanted to just first share something from the big book. Hang on for one sec. I've been speaking all, all morning teaching. <laughs> okay, so page 29 of the big book, it says, each individual in the personal stories describes in his own language and from his own point of view, the way he established his relationship with God. And so I can only hope, I will tell my story, that within that story, that really is my intention, to really share how I did develop, you know, how I developed 
how I developed, I came to that and, and what I do now to continue on a daily basis to strengthen my relationship with what is I now understand as my higher power. And I'll get a little bit more, I get a whole bunch of time to talk. So I get to talk more, I think about my recovery than I normally get to um, in telling my story. So what it was like, um, not to harp on like why I have this illness, because really who, know, I don't know. There's so many like why, but my mom was depressed. And as a result of that, she was very depressed and didn't have any help. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying this to blame her, but what happened as a result of that is that I had to learn to entertain myself and take care of myself and became very self-sufficient. And I created a fantasy world, really deep, heavy, real life fantasy world. Like my stuffed animals were my best friends, that kind of thing. And it really laid the foundation for the, the purpose and the support that my eating disorder would serve me later on. Because my eating disorder and how it manifested in my life um, was really what people might call, you know, in psychological terms, a dissociative disorder. Um, I, I learned to really dissociate from whatever was uncomfortable and just be with this eating disorder that I, um, I don't know if I, cre I created it or it was there or the words don't really matter. Um, so in my, just moving a little bit forward in terms of those details and how it started to manifest and what it was like. Um, in my early teens, when I started to get more um, de developed, I got unwanted attention for my body. And the way I felt like that was, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm just getting distracted by the little chat things coming up. Okay, I'm going to try not to look down at the little chat things. I don't know how to, I don't know how to get that, get that away. Um, so I got unwanted attention for my body and I felt like I wanted to sort of get rid of my, what I called like my girl parts. It was page 29 that I was referencing. I see somebody writing something down there and there is a solution. It's towards the end of there is a solution. Okay. So um, I wanted to get rid of anything that was on me that was gonna bring me this unwanted attention and my mother concurrently was doing things like buying well this is a time back okay um because i was born in 1957 so this was like 1970 right um she was buying those little pamphlets that they had that were at the checkout in the in the supermarkets like you know atkins diet and how to you know well, all these different things so i started reading those things and my first diet was bran flakes and no cal chocolate soda and swimming that was that was where this really took off and i lost weight pretty fast and i got attention i don't know that i was overweight it's just that I had curves and I didn't want them. I just wanted to look like a little boy. Um, and at college, it really, when I was 17 and I went away to college, it really took off. I read Let's Get Healthy by Adele Davis and I calculated 
the amount of calories that I would need to get to whatever I needed to get to. And I came up with, I was really into numbers and calories and all of that crazy thing. Um, 525 calories a day is what I believed I was supposed to eat to get to wherever I thought I was supposed to go in that world. And I honestly, I never ate 525 calories. I mean, I, I ate, um, uh, a hard-boiled egg for breakfast, one rice cake with a tablespoon of axil rod, happy diet or cottage cheese. I don't know what they call that stuff. Something, something diet. And for dinner, I had a half a can of Campbell's tomato soup that I would reheat after every bite. And I think there was some frozen spinach that was involved in this. That was about it. And lots of black coffee and lots of swimming and lots of biking and lots of yoga. And I got down to 68 pounds. So I had um, full blown, what would have been diagnosable anorexia nervosa, although there wasn't help or diagnosis or much back then to do anything for me. Um, I didn't know that's what I had. I didn't even know anything was wrong with me. I, I was fascinated with my body. I was in love with it. I had done what I wanted, which was get rid of anything. And I didn't just get rid of my body. I got rid of my relationships. I didn't have to interact with other human beings because I had me. And as I said before, you know, this creation of, of like, you know, it was like having all my stuffed animals with me. It was my eating disorder. I mean, I really felt it's not that I had split personality, but in a way that's kind of what it was like because this, this eating disorder that I had. And at that point it was, you know, it was, we'll call it anorexia because that's what it was. Um, was my, was what I leaned on for everything. Um, I really thought I was, I was, better than anyone around me. I thought I was somehow like angelic or like, like above the ground, like floating above the ground. My thinking was not right. And most people who I've known over the years, and I've been coming to OA now for over 31 years, um, who have been in this place, describe this, what happens to their brains. So I'm not alone in this. And I'm really glad to have other people share their experience, strength, and hope and those details and what they went through um, and, and how they got through it. Um, and then at one point I was living, I was at college and I was living in a, in a house with a lot of other people and there was food there. And I can, rem and I remember like most of us, from, you know, there's a lot of things I don't remember, but I remember food. Like I remember like every kind of food. Um, and I ate someone's raisins. Okay, like this is all I'm coming from like eating, you know, a rice cake and I had raisins and it was the most exotic thing that could have ever happened in my life. And I could not stop eating the raisins. I went in a bathroom and I was eating them. I remember exactly where I was. I can picture it like it's right here. And after that happened, I didn't know what happened to me. I was like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, we can't have that happen, you know. Um, you know, and, and, and I've heard people t 
talk about it, and I'm not quite sure for other people's experience, only my own, that, you know, anorexia was, the, or anorexia is this, uh, it, people might imagine people, you know, don't like food or don't want to eat food. And that was not it, what it really was at the bottom of it for me. It was fear of food. You know, I was just so afraid of what food would do to me, maybe for me, um, you know, and, and this just proved it to me, like, oh, Jesus. Weirdly enough, not long after that, I moved to another, I met a girl, I moved out of that house, I moved into another situation at college, and it was with a girl who was a bulimic, an active bulimic, so we all find each other, right? And so she would eat a bag of, she would be a normal person during the day. And then all of a sudden she'd eat a bag of Chips Ahoy cookies and go to the bathroom and I'd go with her. She like invited me into the bathroom with her and she'd throw up. And it was so, the thing about it, she was so full of life, you know, and I was this zombie in this thing that I had made myself into and here she was so exciting and so I started doing what she was doing but not telling her and I would eat her cookies and sort of channel her and do her thing and replace the cookies and eventually um, my bulimia took over the bulimia took over my life I was throwing up all day long years and years and years, um, from 17 to 24, I was a professional bulimic. I don't know how I managed to do my life, like high functioning. Um, I, I had um, destroyed a lot of parts of my body when I was at my worst of my lowest weight. I was told that I had digested my heart muscle. Um, I didn't get my period for seven to 10 years, something like that. And, um, and then I met somebody and got married and had a baby. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I don't know. You know, and I thought, okay, that's gonna fix all this, right? Because then when I got pregnant, I stopped throwing up. And I thought, oh, and this is this is a real key feature for me, and I share this all the time about my, my eating disorder, especially the bulimia, is that I believed in between the times when I wasn't throwing up, I wasn't bulimic. Like I only, I thought it was all better. And like, cause it wasn't there. And then I'd be shocked. I'd be in the bathroom, I'd throw up and I'd say, how did I get here? Like, what was that? And it, it just to sort of fast forward to how I work things now, I wake up every day. It's been 20, over 20 years since I've done that particular activity. And I know who I am. You know, I know, um, I know I'm an anorexic or I'm, you know, recovering from anorexia. I know I'm a bulimic. I know I'm an ex because I know what medicine I need to take. You know, I wake up, I really do wake up untreated even after all this time. So enough about all that gore. Um, when my son was seven, he was in camp, summer camp. And at the end of summer camp, there was no more camp. And there was a, a teacher, a teacher, a, um, a, a counselor who, a 
approached me and said that two children, my son and another little girl, had become thick as thieves, and it was two weeks before school started. Would would we, me and the mother, like to have our kids get together? And, oh, great. Um, and that mother knew who I was the minute she met me because she was one of us. And she brought me to my first meeting. We were on the phone this morning. We're best friends. We've stayed friends all these years. Our children grew up like sister and brother. And she, she took me to my first meeting. And my first meeting, I live in New York City, was a huge Wednesday night, 6.30 p.m., anorexic bulimic focused meeting. And I came into the meeting, it was like standing room only. And, you know, the, the thing about it is that um, everyone in that room was laughing and joyful. And the qualifier in that meeting, I had been before, like back then, I was a labor and delivery nurse. And I mean, I used to be pushing with a woman who was giving birth. And literally in between her pushes, go right into the bathroom and puke and come back and push with her. That was the extent of where I was at. And this woman who was qualifying worked with me and she had been doing the same thing. And she was joyous and free. And, and you know, now, or, or not too long after that, I could go to any kind of OA meeting. You know, it's, it's really, for me, it's um, many symptoms, one solution. But it was very useful for me. If I had come in and I didn't hear that, I don't know what I would, where, where I wouldn't be here, maybe. Um, it was useful for me to hear something I could identify with like that. Um, the second meeting that I went to was another anorexic bulimic on a Friday night at seven o'clock and there was a big library and they read how it works. And I'm gonna take a moment. Um, just, can someone let me know where I'm at in my time for a second, just so I know how much more time do I have? 14 minutes and 25 seconds. Oh, that's just great. Okie dokie, because I really wanna read this from the big book. Thank you so much. Every time I hear this, like I never get sick of the big book. So, you know, here's my first big book. It's, you know, just falling apart. But there were some things about this that I really, that really helped me. So I'm gonna read from chapter five. This is on page 58 of Alcoholics Anonymous in the big book. How it works. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. Those who do not recover are people who cannot or will not completely give themselves to this simple program, usually men and women who are constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. There are such unfortunates. They are not at fault. They seem to have been born that way. They are naturally incapable of grasping and developing a manner of living which demands rigorous honesty. Their chances are less than average. There are those two who suffer from grave emotional and mental disorders, but many of them do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. honest. 
our stories disclose in a general way what we used to be like, what happened, and what we are like now. If you have decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. At some of these we balked. We thought we could find an easier, softer way, but we could not. With all the earnestness at our command, we beg of you to be fearless and thorough from the very start. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go, absolutely. Remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us, but there is one who has all power. That one is God, may you find him now. Half measures availed us nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And, you know, when I came into that first meeting, the one right before this one, you know, and I, and I, um, I thought the only thing was, that was wrong with me was my food. And I thought if I could fix the food, if I could only fix the food, then I would fix my eating disorder. And it took me a very, very long time in the rooms to find the not easier, softer way. <laughs> I tried everything, you know, I really tried manipulating my food over and over and over again. Um, years of calorie counting and over-exercising and obsessing with my body and the scale. I had dug such deep neural pathways in that way of life. The uncomfortability of letting go of any of those things was just intolerable for me, but I didn't leave. I knew that I would have this eating disorder in the rooms or out of the rooms. And I tried everything I could that I thought I was gonna try to stop throwing up and, and having all of my obsessions and my eating disorder. But the one thing that I wouldn't give up was, um, or, or try, let's just say, is eating. <laughs> I was like, okay, the way I'm gonna fix this eating disorder is to not eat. And I would hear all my friends who worked it the way I work it now say that for people like me, and this is just for me and for some of my posse who I talk to, the way I work it is that I can't have things off limit. I can't have things that are good and bad. I was throwing up celery. I mean, who throws up celery? I don't know. So it wasn't like, okay, you know, well, I'm not going to eat a brownie and that's going to help me. Now, it doesn't mean that there, for me, for me, because I'm a human person besides someone with an eating disorder, that there are different foods that are going to be, the word triggering, that are going to be more exotic, you know, like there's exotic food, right? And so sugar is one of those. I don't call myself a sugar addict, but anyone who eats sugar, their insulin, you know, changes and then it goes down and then it goes up. And that's because we're people. Um, and I can have abnormal tendencies, just like everyone else with those things. But 
I can't, for me, the way that I have learned to demonstrate faith is by letting go of controlling the food. Because when I want to fix the food and I want to fix my body and I want to, and I, and me, and me, there is no place, no space or what other people might call God or a higher power or something else. There's no opportunity to change. There's nothing. And, you know, let's just pretend for a moment. Like I didn't have an eating disorder, right? And I was just a, a person. Um, let's just say I was a kitty cat or a dog or another animal, any other kind of being, sentient being. Now, of course, there are animals that do get a little crazy with their food, but maybe that's their owners that set them up for it. I don't know. I would like to believe that if I left everything alone, and this is just an idea I have, I don't know that I can practice it, but it's a thought that if I stayed out of the way, my body would actually know how to work. Like it knows how to beat its heart right? It knows how to breathe me. It knows that I'm tired and go to sleep. Oh, here's a good one. I remember when, when, when my son was about 11 or 12 and like, he doesn't have an eating disorder. Oh my God. Thank you. And I remember asking him one time, like, what is it like to be hungry? <laughs> it's like, and he said, well, how do you know? I said, how do you know? You know, and I've been in recovery about five years. He said, well, mom, do you know when you have to pee? And I'm, I was like, really? It's, it's like that? I mean, like, really? For other people? And he didn't say, oh, well, your tummy grumbles or whatever. I mean, it was like that, like, organic. And... I don't know that I have that on any given day at this point, but I got an idea that I was going all in the wrong direction and that at some point I had to find some cracks in the wall to surrender. What my friends that had recovered from bulimia were telling me that they did was they didn't fix the food first. They didn't wait until they weren't uncomfortable eating that they made a decision that they were going to be part of a no matter what club, meaning like you eat it, you keep it. And that means I'm not going to under eat the next day. I'm not going to diet the next day. I'm not going to throw it up. And that meant I might have to be willing to gain some weight if food was staying in me that I didn't get rid of. And uh, this is the other thing I thought when I came in is that if I got fat, I would die. And I don't mean like, oh, I would die from like obesity related complications. Like, oh, I'll get diabetes or I'll get, no, I just mean like I'll die. And I don't even mean morbidly obese. I don't even know what I meant. I just meant like if I have a human body. And at one point I realized I wanted recovery more than I wanted skinny. And that was when I became willing to go to any length and it meant eating um, and keeping my food. And I 
had years of eating foods that had only been so exotic to me. I didn't even know if I liked them. I, I had no idea. I just thought that they were, um, they must, they must be great because they're foods I can't eat, you know, like fried chicken or something, you know, just, but did I even know if I liked it? I don't know. Because if I did eat that, I wouldn't keep it anyway, you know, um, and I would go binge and eat a million other things because it set me off to the races. So I had to be willing. And I did gain a lot of weight. I probably was, um, I'm only five feet, five one, five feet and a half. And from whatever it is I am here now, I was probably, I probably was about 40 or 50 pounds heavier than this. And I didn't die. And you know, gaining that weight was like one of the best things that could have ever happened to me. It was really, because I saw nothing happened. Like I had this imagination about what would happen. I also really thought if I got rid of my eating disorder, I'd be really boring. And, and, and along with that, I also thought I won't even know what to talk about. Somebody needs to mute themselves, please. Thank you. I really believed I would be really boring because the only thing I knew how to talk about was my eating disorder and me and my body and my exercise. And I'm gonna ask again if someone can please mute. Thank you. Um, and um, the thing that really changed for me was where things really started to turn around was that when my son went off to college. So September 1st of the year 2000, we used to have a meeting, which is now online, 7.15 in the morning in New York City. And we were a handful of people. Now it's like 200 people in that meeting. And the church was closed on holidays. So Labor Day, I had the meeting in my house right here in this apartment. I used to have meetings here all the time. And I was so scared because my son just went off to school the day before. And I thought, I can't be alone here like this with this. And I had a third step experience. I had the safety of the group. I had all of you with me and I knew I'd never be alone and that I didn't have to be alone with this eating disorder anymore. And my bulimia left. It doesn't mean everything else left. Um, I still kept exercising um, and just to fast forward from that, my last exercise, really serious exercise related injury was 10 years ago. I have a permanent fracture in my left foot, a stress fracture that um, prevents me from, from doing any kind of weight bearing. I can't, I can't really walk very well. Um, and that's my other gift. Um, of this recovery. The first was gaining all that weight and the second was fracturing my foot. My exercise bulimia was lifted because I realized at that point 
I could fracture. I could just go ahead and fracture the other one. I was like, where are you going to go now? And um, it's taken me years to find the kind of peace of mind. I have one minute. Perfect. Thank you. And establish my relationship with God. I define my higher power as my pause. When I was in my eating disorder, there was no pause. Um, I'm a responsible employee. I show up early. I'm a good friend. I'm a wonderful mother, grandmother. I do service. I work the steps. I don't engage in arguments. I gossip much less. And the smallest part of the recovery that I can say I'm grateful for, because I'm grateful for all of that, is that I eat what I want as an act of faith. And I, I, I can only um, pray that hearing my story in any way, shape, or form, and who, where I was and how I am now would offer some hope to any of you that might be struggling because there's a beautiful, beautiful, wonderful life ahead. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen, for that incredible story of recovery, that uh, many symptoms, one solution pamphlet is just my favorite. I think I took that from your meeting and used it at our San Diego AV meeting. It's so amazing. Now I'd like to introduce our convention chair and my friend, Jerry J. Hi, I'm Jerry J. And I'm a grateful compulsive eater and your convention chair. Like Ellen, we too can find freedom from compulsive eating and eating behaviors. We also hope the message heard this weekend was loud and clear that we all belong in Overeaters Anonymous because we are all OA. All we have to do is keep the faith, work the steps, go to meetings, get a sponsor. It's been a real honor to be your 2021 convention chair. Keep coming.